0: One of the very important um, supports and expressions and fruits of Buddhist practice is um, expressed in a Pali word, uh, sadda, in Sanskrit it's shraddha, I think it's pronounced that way. And um, it's usually translated into English uh, as faith. And when it's translated as faith, um, there is at least a good percentage of the audience in the West who are troubled by the word and would rather not use it, and would rather not see faith as a part of their Buddhist practice. That's when they kind of got away from a faith-based spirituality or religion in coming to Buddhist practice, which is much more practical, pragmatic, down-to-earth, kind of your immediate experience, how it is for you, finding your own way. And... um, Faith sometimes has a... People who have that kind of reaction are often associating faith with, I think, with um, uh, certain kind of faith-based kind of religions where there's a creed or belief system that you're supposed to have faith in which is equated to believing in. You're supposed to believe in completely. And, um, and so there's something external from you, a belief system, a creed. And, um, and many people have been troubled. They, the problem, uh, troubled by creeds and beliefs and... And you know, on what basis do you believe certain things which are uh, passed down through scripture and you know, not verifiable in direct experience, perhaps? Um, and um, so, uh, the trend to translate its faith uh, uh, causes some difficulties for people. Um, what I'd like to suggest this evening is that this very important word "sada" uh, might be best translated into English um, by three English words. And depending on the context, uh, different words work better. And the three words are faith, and then um, trust and confidence. And, um, uh, and to get a sense of um, kind of how this saddha or this faith plays out in practice in our lives, it's important to recognize that it's understood to be a capacity that we have. It's a subjective capacity uh, so, the Buddhists tend to focus a little more on the subjective side of what we would call faith, rather than the objective uh, side, in the sense that it's a faculty, it's a potential. And as a faculty that we carry with us in our psyche, it's a faculty that can be developed and strengthened, just like you would strengthen a muscle, just like you can strengthen your faculty, your capacity your, for concentration. You can develop your capacity, your faculty for faith. And, as a faculty, uh, it's something which is understood to be very supportive of spiritual practice. It's very supportive of mindfulness practice or of, of meditation practice. And without some sadha, without some uh, faith or trust or confidence, it's very hard to really uh, engage wholeheartedly and fully in a regular uh, spiritual practice on an ongoing basis. And I suspect there's a fair number of people here in this room you know, who practice meditation or want, would like to practice uh, meditation and um, find it hard to do it every day for many reasons. And um, there's many reasons why it's hard in our daily life. But one of the elements that's supportive of doing it on a regular basis, to have that, that sense of dedication and inspiration to do it, is this element of sadha, of faith or confidence or trust. And, um, and the stronger that capacity is developed in us, the more inspired, the easier it is than to follow through on uh, whatever we're trying to do. Um, as a capacity, as a faculty that we have, this uh, faith is often associated with the emotional aspect of our being. It's an emotional uh, expression of quality. And so uh, it's best expressed in the English, ex- English expression um, to uh, put your heart into something or to be wholehearted in what you're doing. Um, you don't want to just kind of do your practice you know, half-heartedly, you want to do it wholeheartedly And when you do it wholeheartedly, it's more than just kind of you do it vigorously. You put yourself into it, and kind of a little bit more emotionally, or kind of fully, or with some kind of devotion, perhaps, or something. To do it whole, to put your heart into what you're doing. And um, you see it. I certainly see it uh, at times when my faith is strong. And there's a kind of uplifting feeling that comes with faith. Um, uh, uh, Both, both kind of all kinds of faith, even the kind of the unhealthy kinds, perhaps. But it kind of has, it uplifts us, it uplifts the heart, uplifts us, we feel more buoyed, or inspired, or happy. kind of happiness can come with faith. And I've been, uh, I've been around teachers, I've read uh, certain teachings, I've been around uh, practice centers, where I've encountered the, 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 kind of the palpable sense of someone's practice, or the sense of a practice place when people are sitting on retreat, or, or some, very, uh, te- some teachings which have been gone right to the heart for me. And I've been filled with inspiration. Um, or faith uh, 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 by this encounter. One, one teeny story that I remember just sitting here is um, once hearing a Dharma talk and I was so moved by a Dharma talk, it was in the evening. I went uh, right down to the meditation hall. Uh, everybody, everybody else went to bed because it was late. And I went and stayed up late sitting because the talk was so inspiring for me. So this kind of need to be inspired. Is a uh, often a very helpful part of uh, of a spiritual life. The important thing, though, is that the inspiration be well based. Uh, that it be if you're inspired by something that's worthy to be inspired by, or, or inspired in such a way that it serves you in your practice rather than distracts you. And some sometimes, sometimes faith can be a, a distraction if it gets too um, too energetic or too um, gushy or too blind in various ways. One of the associations in Buddhism with this idea of faith, the Sala, is that it's a tranquil. It's a tranquil faith. So a feeling a tranquility is part of it. So you wouldn't have the fervor of a true believer if you have, if you have Buddhist faith. You'd be tranquil about it. You'd leave your neighbors alone. So... Um, so it's a, a, a faculty we have. It's something that kind of associates, for some of us at least, with kind of more the emotional side of life rather than the intellectual side. Something that moves our hearts, moves us. And um, at times when we're discouraged in practice, sometimes inspiration is very important, ha- arousing our faith. In the in the in almost all Buddhist traditions that I know, in their classic um, pra- pra- classic way that they're, that they're done. Um, uh, uh, faith practices are integral to the practices people do so you'd go to a, a Theravadan temple in Thailand or a Thai temple here in this country or you go to a Zen monastery or just very many places and people would uh, bow to the Buddha and uh, many Westerners don't like to bow so like in a Zen monastery at the beginning of certain uh, services you bow three times to the Buddha Americans didn't like doing that so Suzuki Roshi had them bow nine, nine times <laughs> And um, I thought it was just part of the ancient tradition. You bowed nine times at the Zen Center. And then after being there a few years, I found out, no, no, in Japan, they do it three times. The, um, there's bowing, there's chanting, uh, there is uh, making offerings, um, there is listening to Dharma talks, which was meant to be kind of inspiring, also as part of that devotional side for some people, some settings. And, um, and sometimes the chanting can be quite extensive. And if you understand what you're chanting, if it's done in English or you understand the Pali, it's often, for some people, very uplifting the very words you're chanting because they're often chanting the teachings of the Buddha or you're chanting um, um, the description of what the Buddha is like or what the Dharma is like or what the Sangha is like. And for people who are really kind of focused on Buddhist teachings or Buddhist kind of understanding of what it's all about, uh, that Buddhist description is very uplifting and inspiring. And you might do that every day. You, know, you, you, would, you do a retreat, for example, and part of that retreat would be the chanting and the bowing. And that would be strengthening your faith and your involvement. There are some people uh, for whom um, the, the primary thing that needs to be developed at a phase of their personal growth in a spiritual tradition is the element of faith. And uh, sometimes a teacher who recognizes that will encourage them to do practices or do things that inspire faith. And sometimes the teacher recognizes they don't have to do anything in particular, but they just have to hang, hang around. And, um, and so like in Thailand, you'll see people hang around the monastery and they're not taught to meditate right away. They might hang out for, for many years they, they, and they work in the kitchen, they work around, they help here and there. They, um, uh, you know, they're kind of doing something based on their faith and letting their faith grow and grow and grow until at some point their faith is strong enough that it makes sense to them for them to uh, do a meditation practice and then they get a different instruction. Um, it's a little bit strange idea perhaps for us in the West. We don't have that, uh, that kind of idea so strongly in our kind of Western Vipassana tradition. But I'm just kind of laying out the background of how the tradition looks at the issue of faith to give you a sense of how important it's seen. It's seen. And that, again, it's a faculty that can be developed and cultivated. So I've talked a little bit about faith uh, using the word faith in a positive way, as kind of uplift of the heart, as inspiration, that fuels our practices, and encourages us to go along. Without some of that, I think it would be impossible to practice. At least I would feel like for myself. It would have been impossible for me to have practiced as much as I did, unless I had, a, I had faith and inspiration in what I was doing, from my, my teachers and fellow practitioners and, and the teachings and different things. One of the things that gave me faith and inspiration was when I got a kind of, when I started getting a sense of what was possible and having sense of possibility uh, is, uh, can arouse uh, great faith, great inspiration. Oh yeah, I can, this can be done. The Buddha once said, um, if, this, if this can't be done, I wouldn't, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't be teaching you. You know, I teach you because it can be done. And uh, so, they, so the people are inspired in different ways then different goals but, um, even the goal of uh, learning to be completely present without any goal, that possibility, that goal, <laughs> uh, can arouse a lot of inspiration in people. Oh, it's possible to do that. I don't have to be trapped by my mind, which is always rushing around forward and backwards into the past and the future. I can uh, discover what it's like to rest in the present moment and not need to go any, anywhere at all, with, uh, just to be here, content and at peace. So, a sense of possibility can arouse faith in people. Um, part of the difficulty uh, with faith uh, can be that when people have faith in something outside of themselves, and even, even the idea of faith in a possibility, it can be in a sense a little bit outside of oneself, like into the future, and can be a little bit risky to have that because there's expectation and disappointment that's possible then. But, uh, part of, but uh, to have some faith in something outside of ourselves, to trust something outside of ourselves rather than to trust something in deep inside so I'd like, to I'd like to distinguish between two kinds of trust uh, or two kinds of faith'm switching now to the word using the word more trust and that is um, uh, trust which is more uh, relational perhaps or external or externalized, where we trust something outside of ourselves and then versus trust which is internal or innate or something um, that um, uh, is not, not found by searching outside of ourselves. And I think all of us uh, have trust in things outside of ourselves. We, human society can't function without a very high level of trust in uh, people around us who, to do things. We trust that the drivers are going to stop for the red light. Uh, we trust that, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of things. We trust, um, you know, we sign up for a, uh, a class at the local junior college and we trust that the college has chosen good teachers, or we trust that it's worthwhile to take this class. The trust might be provisional, um, but um, you know, we might be ready to kind of doubt it or question it. But we, we come you know, with some kind of trust that this is worthwhile to do and what we're going to do. We, um, um, so, uh, but some of the trust we find that's kind of provisional or relational in society is something that we learn in relationship, and it's developed in relationship. So for example, uh, trusting a friend. You might meet someone and you don't know how trustable that person is at first. You trust them maybe a little bit like a decent person initially. But because you get to know them for a while, uh, you can know you know, the degree to which they're trustable, how much you can trust them, what you can say to them and know that they're not going to tell other people, for example, or whatever. And after a while you get a sense of where you can trust this person. Maybe trust, grows, trust can grow and grow and grow. And it's something that's learned through experience. Or you go to a mechanic, your car is in trouble. and. Uh, and, and then the question is, can you trust this mechanic? You don't know anything about cars, so it's kind of like, you know, Greek to you. So, you know, it's kind of like you feel a bit tentative about what this person says when he comes with a $1,000 bill or, you know, or, or a $1,000 estimate. And can you trust this person? And then, uh, not only the price, but also will the person do a good job? And then it turns out that the person did a great job and it turned out it actually was very cheap for what he had to do. And you learn, oh, I can trust this person. It's great. And so you learn in the relationship that trust uh, is possible, is built. And, um, and so it's kind of verified trust that way. Some people, however, will trust things external to themselves which are not reliable or they put too much trust in it. Um, and um, uh, putting, putting all their eggs in one basket. They trust, you know. So, for example... And so we, we all, I mean, many of us will have that kind of thing. So, for example... Uh, some people trust money, and some people are quite, some people are quite neurotic around money, uh, wanting it, not the feeling they don't have enough. And, um, and, uh, and it can be a real uh, difficulty for some people. I met one person today who talked about the tremendous anxiety uh, that this person has around money, money issues, even though the person is you know, seemingly relatively, relatively well off. Um, but pe- people have tremendous trust on that money will kind of make us safe, will offer us security, um, offer us happiness or something. And some people go on the money route. That's where they put their trust for their happiness is in the money, just if I get enough money. Other people put trust in relationship. If I can just get the right partner, then everything will work out. That's, and and they, what they, they really trust. That's where they put their trust, in the, in relationship. That's where it's gonna, my happiness, my security, well-being is going to be. Other people it might be in status or it might be in a belief system or in a political view or something. There's something externally put our trust in. There's a story that I'm fond of telling because uh, in America we say in God we trust on our money. Uh, When I went to Burma, um, when when I was there overnight, the government canceled the value of almost every uh, paper currency that it had issued. And, um, that was kind of unbelievable to me. I mean, money, you can rely on money. I mean, it's like, you know, money is money, right? It's, um, some people rely on their telephones. They, 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 tr- they trust them. They trust that It's that connection. Some people trust a the connection. They, just, they must be, be connected all the time. And, um, So the, um, but you know, I kind of assumed growing up money is money, you know, it's pretty, you know, you know what it is, it's absolute, you know, there's a little bit of inflation and change a little over time, but you know, you you money, you know, it's like, that's more reliable than, you know, than the weather for sure. And then to wake up one morning and find out that your currency had absolutely no value. It was less valuable than toilet paper because it was kind of, you know, the texture wasn't right. Um, You know, that was a big surprise to me. So, many people will find that they put trust in certain things and then find that that trust was maybe, um, um, uh, didn't really uh, live up to what they were expecting would do for them. Perhaps they, they got fulfilled. Maybe they ended up making a lot of money and they found out the money didn't make them happy. Or they ended up having a wonderful relationship. But somehow, it was a wonderful relationship, but you know, it's not making them as happy as they thought it was going to be. I mean, their problems are still there. They're still a bit anxious and worrying about things. And, you know, it's still... <laughs> and, um... I did this wonderful panel uh, some years ago, panel discussion with inter-Buddhist dis- panel. And they're supposed to be... Uh, the uh, Tibetan tradition, the Vipassana the tradition, and the, or the Theravada tradition, and the Zen tradition represented. And there was supposed to be one representative from, who was a Western teacher, and one representative who was an uh, Asian teacher who had come from Asia. And there were these two um, then representatives of Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, there was the uh, Western woman who was a Tibetan teacher, a lovely woman, uh, many of you might know her, Lama Paldin, Carolyn Paldin. And, um, but she came dressed in, you know, in a Tibetan kind of monastic kind of robe, and with beads, and you know, and she talked about how wonderful the ancient tradition was. And, and then this other—I forget his name—another wonderful Tibetan teacher uh, from Tibet came, and he wore a business suit. <laughs> and when uh, and middle of Lama Paulden's uh, beautiful guided meditation on ma- uh, visualizing Tara, his cell phone rang. <laughs> <laughs> Meeting of the East and the West. <laughs> so, um, sorry, so trust. So, what do, we put, what do we put our trust in? And some people will have things they trust and they even accomplish or, or, or fulfill that, what they're hoping. And they find out what they were trusting didn't really um, cut the mustard, it really didn't do it for them in the way they were hoping it would do it. And sometimes it happens in a you know, kind of nice way. We just we realize something wonderful and realize it doesn't really make us happy as we hoped. And sometimes we realize what we put our trust in was was unwarranted. And we put trust in and our trust was betrayed. And there was a whole time in the 1980s where a lot of Buddhist uh, practitioners felt betrayed by their teachers. They put a lot of trust in their teachers. And sometimes they put kind of unreasonable trust in their teachers. Um, They kind of trusted the teachers kind of like they would be like a paternal figure, great authority figure who they relied on for everything. And then the teachers betrayed them in some way by their scandals. Um, So, there's this external kind of trust or relational trust that builds over time that society is built on, that's very important. And then there's a different kind of trust, I'd like to suggest, and I don't quite know the word for it, but it could be maybe called innate trust or trust in just being. Some sense of a core sense of uh, uh, well-being or peace or um, uh, perfection or uh, completeness. In our, deep in our hearts, deep in our psyche. Uh, some trust in our innate goodness, our innate perfection, our innate beauty, our innate preciousness, our innate uh, radiance. Um, those are some of the kind of ways it's described. So we're not looking for something external to us. We realize that uh, something is right here. And rather than looking externally for something that's going to fulfill us, we find that fulfillment inside in something that's here. And some people, if, they, if you have a sense of that, even an intuitive sense, that's there, life becomes a very different game. Because you have this place of of, of being of resting then. You have this place, kind of a ballast for your life that um, can make a lo- the, the kind of the, the, difficulty, the ups and downs of life a lot easier. But if you don't have this ballast, if you don't have this, this, this core of you that kind of feels complete and feels good and well, then um, it's a um, person is much more likely to look externally for something to fulfill them, to fill them up, to make them complete. Part of the function of Buddhist practice, hopefully, is to begin, by paying attention, by settling down, getting concentrated, is to begin getting a sense of some deep place inside of us that can be a refuge, a place of uh, safety, a place of beauty, a place of feeling complete and feeling at peace, where nothing else needs to happen in order to make us feel complete. So there's no inorderness anymore. I need X, Y, and Z in order to feel good. Uh, X, Y, and Z doesn't have to happen. The US dollar, the greenback can be cancelled tonight following, you know, and it might be unfortunate and cause some difficulties, but that doesn't um, seem to uh, ruffle your basic sense of peace inside, your connection to that kind of sense of trust, deep trust in yourself, trust in internal trust. That kind of, uh, and there's a number of things we can trust you know, in Buddhist practice. One is ourselves, our innate goodness. Another thing that Buddhists learn to trust is the goodness of their intentions. Buddhism puts a lot of emphasis on that we should pay, atten- pay attention to our intentions. What motivates us? What, you know, the different acts, like when we're going to say something, why are you going to say that? Is that to have a cutting remark or to do one utmanship? Or is that, you know, to be you know kind and or you know caring for someone what's the impulse that drives what you say and what you act on and even what you think the intention we call it and in buddhism you're encouraged to look at the quality of that intention and see is that intention skillful or unskillful is it helpful or unhelpful is it uh, good or not good is it kind or is it uh, malicious what is the quality of that intention and if you pay attention to it, then the opportunity arises that you could only act or try to only act on those intentions which are, in shorthand, good, which are skillful, which are helpful. If you begin to act on intentions which are good, then that gives a person, a, can give a person a lot of confidence in themselves, in their capacity to live in a good way, but also a kind of confidence that comes when you know that you're blameless. You go into a situation and you track your intentions, and you say, oh, my intentions were good. I might have made a mistake. I might have done a faux pas or done something, and I might have, someone might have gotten hurt because of it. But there's a kind of com- confidence or trust in ourselves that comes. We know, oh, even though I regret what happened, I know in my heart that um, my intentions were good. The, Buddha, uh, the expression the Buddha used for this is, uh, gives you the ability to go into any assembly, uh, without any shame, you know, standing upright. So there's a kind of trust in ourselves when we, kind of, when we learn to work with our intentions and learn to kind of, you know, um, know how to respond to them in ways that are healthy and good. Another kind of uh, uh, trust in ourselves that's possible is um, uh, our trust in the practice we're doing. And, um, and in particular, I find uh, the trust in mindfulness to be very important for me. Uh, One of the really wonderful things that I've kind of received from my years of practice is a very, very deep trust in mindfulness practice itself. And I like the word trust or faith because um, it doesn't give me unequivocal proof that in every situation I'm going to find myself in, that mindfulness is going to be useful, the right thing. I mean, how could I have that kind of proof? That, you know, all all the possible situations in the future, that mindfulness is going to be the key. I, I, I can't. But I have this deep faith that that's the case, or trust that's the case, based on many years' experience in many situations, difficult situations, wonderful situations, seeing the power over and over again of what it's like simply to be present, to be honestly present in the, right now to what's going on. And to see that presence, relaxed presence, being here for this situation right now. Um, and really showing up, not being distracted or rushing off and just being here, opens up possibilities that would not be possible if I wasn't present, if I wasn't mindful. It's kind of like uh, mindfulness or presence is kind of makes room or opens, opens doors through which new things can walk through or new things can occur. If we're riding our experience really tight, for example, if someone's talking to you, and you have something very important to say and you interrupt them. Well, that's very nice. I mean, well, you know, if, especially if you have something important to say. But uh, you might have, inter- you might have by, by interrupting the person, you might have interrupted a whole range of other possible outcomes. Uh, that, um, and um, so, for example, if you hadn't interrupted the person and said what you felt was so important, but just listened to the person out and offered listening and presence. The person maybe, perhaps, feels listened to in a deep way and then is willing to kind of relax and share in a deeper place. And it's amazing what comes out of the person with their wisdom or their sharing or the depth of their feeling. And you're really glad you didn't say anything because you got all this, they presented themselves in a much deeper way because they felt they could trust you because you were such a good listener, perhaps. Or perhaps because you don't rush into the conversation but you pause before you speak and so, that you offer presence instead of, you know, your opinion. And in that pause, you have a chance to digest what they say a little bit more and to reflect and to think and to let something percolate. And something, a whole new thing comes out of your mouth. Or perhaps they have a chance to do that. And then they have a chance to come up with something new with it. What I'm pointing to is, what I'm trying to point to is that presence, calm, space uh, allows for new possibilities to happen they are not possible if we ride our experience really tight and close. One of the things that happens when we're mindful uh, instead of reactive is that um, the ways in which we're wound up tight has a better chance to begin to unwind and relax. And as we unwind, that also opens up new possibilities. Um, mindfulness has a way of just staying mindful rather than reactive, just staying, staying, being honest what's happening now and now and now. My experience over and over again is that something unknown is more likely to happen. If you're open to possibilities, then, you know, have a door that's open, open to what's happened, you're also going to be open to something unknown, unknowable. And you can't be in control anymore. And some people, that's why they don't like to be present so much, because presence requires some willingness to be on the edge of some unknown possibility that will arise in that, in that mindfulness. But I've seen over and over again situations that seemed where I had no clue how to deal with or what to do. And, um, but my commitment was to stay there in the situation, stay in the difficulty, and to keep being mindful. And then, miraculously, somehow, I don't know, it, we find our way. The situation finds itself, finds its way. And something happens there. And uh, what was primarily what I attributed to is what allowed that finding our way was just staying in there and being present, being present, being present. Sometimes in, in great, people are in great, you know, all kinds of great, uh, very difficult situations. I find it so useful. So it gives me a lot of faith in the practice itself, or confidence. So the other word that I like for the word sada is confidence. Um, so there's faith, there's trust, and there's confidence. And confidence is very important because... Um, um, with, without confidence, we might not have the, um, the inner strength to want to pursue what we have to do or take the next step that needs to be taken. And confidence, one of the key confidences, that I imagine, is confidence in ourselves. To have confidence that we can do it, that we can walk the path, that we can engage in this practice, that we can be present, that we can develop our compassion, or whatever the practices you're wanting to do, to have confidence, yes, I can do this. And confidence, yes, I can do this, can vary. It can be a wide range of how confident we can be. And confidence can grow and develop over time or it can be squashed. It can, you can get discouraged and feel lack of confidence. You know, A little, little bit of discouragement happens and you don't feel so confident anymore. And you come, go, go to the next situation and you're not so confident uh, with yourself and you feel kind of wobbly. Um, but confidence is something that can be developed um, uh, partly by acting. Partly, partly by, not by kind of you know building self-esteem in the abstract, but by actually engaging in the world and learning from our mistakes and learning from our successes and learning what we can do and can't do and developing confidence in our ability to actually do. So, my, my opinion, my feeling is that uh, good confidence comes from uh, actually acting in the world. People who lack a lot of confidence I often recommend they develop their confidence in, in small pieces, small steps. Do some really small things that you can feel. Oh, I did that. I can do that. And then take then take one step further and do something a little bit more. Oh, I can do that. You know, I can go shopping. You know, I can go buy my groceries and, and feel confident. Oh, I can do that. I can know I can do that. And then you know, take a little bit further and a little bit further. I can in meditation practice um, maybe do do the practice in short chunks rather than saying, I'm going to sit every day for the next year. That might be too much. Too much. But you might say, I'm going to sit every day for the next three days. <coughs> and out of three days, you've done it. <coughs> wow, I can do it. And then you feel some confidence in yourself. But if you say, I'm going to sit every day for a year, and you sit only three days, that's discouraging. So set your, set your sights low at first, just to match who, who you are. So you can slowly build... Your confidence, so it's kind of realistic confidence. So I can do that. I can do that, and it builds on itself. If you leap too far forward, it doesn't work. Uh, My son, my six-year-old son, is really into baseball now, and I play. I play. We play a lot of catch, and um, back and forth. And so about four months ago is when he started, and now he got a glove and a ball, and and I throw, and and uh, four months ago he was uh, what to say, he he couldn't throw uh, very well. He couldn't catch very well. But he had a lot of enthusiasm, and I had to be very careful just to throw to, throw to him so that he would keep his, uh, his uh, joy in it, his appreciation of it. I would just try to, try to throw just the right speed and, and just the right land the right, basically, you know, he'd hold his glove like this, and I'd try really hard to <laughs> land in the glove. <laughs> and, he, you know, he loved it. And, um, and, uh, and then, uh, at some point, um, I wanted to try to teach him that, you know, you also need to learn how to catch the, the ball by holding your glove upright like this, not always down like this. So I tried to held his hand up like this, I showed him, and he was, you know, um, got really upset. And, uh, you know, I can't do that, it's impossible, I don't want to do it, I can't do it. And it's easy, all you do is like this. And, 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 and once you do it like this, and I'll get really close to you, I'll throw the ball really close and a step further, further away. And he didn't want to hear of it, you know, it was really hard for him. So I had to back off, you know. This way that parents, you know, can be kind of ahead of the curve, ahead of the development of the kid, right? <laughs> and um, and so, uh, but now he's, you know, after four months of doing this every kind of almost every day, now he's getting it. He's on his own. He somehow, it just seems like just grow naturally. You know, just you don't have to teach the kids these certain things. They just kind of just happens, developmentally, when they're ready. Um, so one of the things that, in terms of confidence, it's very important to have some deep respect, appreciation for how things, are de- uh, develop, how, how things evolve developmentally. Not to be ahead of ourselves and think, oh, I'm supposed to be, you know, like, like some monk who's been meditating for 30 years in a cave when I sit down. That's not realistic. But to do it in your own, it's your own step. And my, pract- my son practiced every day, almost, so he knew about the regularity. And then, in the regularity, his own developmental kind of growth happened organically. If you do meditation practice every day, then and do it diligently, and carefully, and with some faith, and, then your own developmental process will unfold in its own way, in its own right way. And there, shouldn't, there should be no one out there kind of pushing you ahead further than you are. And you shouldn't be holding yourself back by your own lack of confidence. But to have confidence in the practice, and, to, and confidence in the practice evolves in its own pace, in its own way, each, each, each person in a different way, but to have some experience of how it works for you and how it evolves can give you a lot of confidence, both in yourself, but also in the practice. So, one of the things I've learned, for example, on practice is um, like when I go on retreat, is when I first went on a retreat, I thought, um, you know, it was all up to me and I'd make this terrible effort, you know, really try hard. And after a while, I realized that um, um, what was really needed on a retreat is just calm, steady, effort of showing up and being mindful. Just calm and steady, being mindful, being mindful, being mindful. And in its own developmental time, the practice matures and deepens. And it doesn't make any sense for me to be riding the practice, judging it and evaluating it. And you know, it's like a farmer who goes out and pulls, you know, is planting corn and so she goes out and looks at her corn seedlings coming out of the ground and pulls them out of the ground. How's it growing? And you know, often we do that in our practice. You know, you know, we sit down to meditate, we follow three breaths and, you know, how well am I concentrated? But it kind of takes, you know, its own time. And you have to kind of respect that. To have some confidence in the time that it takes and the way that it evolves, I think is very helpful um, in support for the practice. And it said in the tradition, it's helpful to have confidence in uh, your teachers or your fellow practitioners, or people who are a little bit further along the, uh, on the path than you than you are. Sometimes it can be a little bit uh, discouraging or to, to um, uh, practice. Sometimes we face great difficulties in practice. And then to know some people who've gone through it or know that phase of practice and um, you have confidence in them, oh yeah, they know and they've been through it, um, uh, then um, it's more easy for us to go through it because of our confidence in them. So I believe that mature spiritual practice has Faith as one of its foundations. And um, some of you might prefer the word trust, and some of you might prefer the word confidence. And I'm happy with any choice of vocabulary around this that you like. But uh, this quality is very important. Without it, I don't think that uh, spiritual life can uh, mature very well. And faith is something that we can develop. So you might look at your faith look at what you have faith in or what you have trust and confidence in. Uh, look at the degree of it. How strong is it? Is it really strong or is it weak? Uh, is it kind of like a little bit? You know, you have some, enough to get you going, but actually, you think the practice is really great, those teachers are really great, thank you, and, um, and you think that, um, uh, but you know, you, you know, and so you're going to do it for sure, but you know, you, well, you, have, you wonder whether you can really, you have it what it takes, you know, you, you, know, you doubt yourself. It's so deflating. It's like having having doubt in yourself is like practicing with wind drag. It's not very very good. So look at your faith. Spend some time uh, uh, reflecting on it and thinking about what you have faith in, what you have trust in. Is what you have trust in reliable? And um, and uh, what is really re- and, and talk to friends about this question. What do your friends think is a really reliable thing to trust? What's the most trustful thing that you can have in your life? Um, and see what they say as an answer. And explore it with friends. And, and offer your ideas to your friends and see what they say. Explore that. And then think about, you know, reflect on how strong your faith is. And if it's strong uh, or if it's weak, I mean, if it's weak, are there ways, healthy ways of strengthening it and developing it? So the last thing I want to say. Um, as a little bit of a challenge for you around this issue of faith. That one of the things that can give the most reliable faith or confidence or trust in Buddhist practice, if you really understand this well, understand how it applies to your life, can give you a kind of adamantine, adamantine faith, very deep, unshakable faith, if you understand this one thing really well. And that is, if you really understand well, the Four Noble Truths. Some of you don't know what it is, but uh, for those of you who know, uh, the Four Noble truth is not kind of just simple Buddhism. It's the core of it. And if you understand that one thing, that will probably give you more confidence in faith than anything else. Don't have faith in the Four Noble Truths. Understand it. How it works. How it's applied. So, how's that for a... Fire and Brimstone sermon. (laughs) Yes, Mark.
1: I agree with everything you said. And I've had a very powerful experience early in my life that gave me faith to develop my practice. And I very much appreciate it. I guess the thing that comes up around faith for me is, is is the nature, like I can. I think in my field, the biologic principles that all these teachers passed down over the years that were wrong, that caused people a lot of uh, suffering, because they were applying these principles and these rules to not be so. Um, We can look at what's happening in the Middle East, where people have strong beliefs that We have such a strong, um, I believe, biologic uh, makeup to be tribal and to collectively hold beliefs that distinguish us and create separation. So I guess the other edge of this is that discernment of, yes. of you know, having faith and yet uh, having a. I'm not sure but it right. distinguishes it some sort of way of, of, of applying methodology to, test yeah.
0: to yeah. so verified faith it's very important what you're pointing to and in, in, you know, I talked about the, uh, um, faith being a faculty a uh, capacity we have um, it's, it's, um, it's, uh, it belongs to a list called the five faculties the five uh, uh, capacities that can be developed And in the tradition that talks about this, it makes it very clear that faith needs to be balanced with wisdom or discernment. And um, the the image is that faith is is like a blind giant. And wisdom is like a um, lame person who can't walk um, who has very clear sight. And so what has to happen is that the uh, giant has to carry the seeing person on top of the shoulders. And uh, together they can find their way. And um, so without, uh, without some really good discernment, uh, faith can be very dangerous. Yes?
1: I heard this definition of faith once, that faith is not sitting on a chair that isn't there.
0: Faith is not sitting on a chair that's not there.
1: Which is kind of what you're talking about, really.
0: Yeah. So, uh, hopefully, you know, so faith is a, is a dangerous animal, but it's also very important. Don't hold back from it because it's... Uh, it's dangerous, but uh, do it wisely and carefully. And also, I kind of I was trying to, trying to point away from that kind of uh, dangerous kind of faith, and talking about the importance of finding the faith inside of yourself, uh, that trust inside of yourself. So I hope this has been helpful, and maybe maybe uh, we can spend a few weeks um, talking about those other five faculties, other, the, the, the other four faculties of the five. It might be interesting to go through them and talk about them and how they work together. So, um, many thanks.